I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, where we're going to spend our time this morning. And I'm going to invite Shandis to come on up for our scripture reading. Good morning. This is the word of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to them, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, looked at him, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses is the Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, My name is Aaron, and I... Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm one of the pastors that doesn't know how to use a microphone. Uh, but if you're new, really glad to have you here. Welcome. And we are going through the Gospel of John together as a church family. We will be in the Gospel of John for a good long while. We're going to just take it nice and slow, line by line, verse by verse, and really look at the person and the work of Jesus, what he said uh, that he came to do, who he said that he is. And we're kind of finishing out this prologue section. The first chapter of John really is a prologue that kind of sets up the whole rest of the book. So in week one, we looked at the idea behind the scenes that Jesus is the word of God. He is eternal. The word was with God and the word was God. This is no mere man that we're studying. Last week, we looked at John the baptizer, the one who points to the Lamb of God and and the one that we are uh, to model our lives after. And then this week, we're going to look at Jesus calling his first disciples. Next week, Jesus is going to turn water into wine and the first of his miracles and the party really gets started then both proverbially and literally in the story. Uh, So hope you'll be here for that. But before we do anything else, let's just pray and let's invite God to do what he wants to do here in our time. God, I I thank you for the story of Jesus. I thank you for uh, this story that, um, even though it happened so long ago, has so much relevance and so much bearing on our lives. I thank you for the way that you have preserved the, the sacred scriptures for us to be able to encounter Jesus And I ask for myself, God, that you'd guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And I I also pray, God, for each and every one of us, myself included, God, would you give us soft and teachable hearts um, that we would be challenged today, not condemned. We don't want the the, the condemnation that comes from the enemy, but we want to be convicted and challenged today, knowing that there are no perfect people in this room. Only one perfect person has ever lived, Jesus, and that all of us have areas where we need to grow and to change, but that, God, you'd let it be a hopeful thing for us, a joyful thing for us, that you love us and care about us enough to call us into that change. Pray for our time together. Jesus, would you draw all of our attention to you? Amen. You know, think about the idea of hobbies and and the different hobbies that people have. Um, 
a lot of people get into a hobby through a friend or someone invites them to try something out and you can kind of dabble in it, right? A hobby is something that you kind of can kind of have as part of your maybe tool bag of things that you, you know, use in life. So some of you, you know, maybe have a hobby of, of cooking and you, you enjoy being in the kitchen and baking and cooking and, and doing things like that. And then some of you maybe have a hobby of, of, I don't know, sewing or making clothes or doing something along those lines. Some of you have a hobby of Cycling, you like to, to ride your bike and you've got some gear and you've got a bike that you bought and you go to and from work and on the weekends you go cycling with friends or whatever, those, those different hobbies. But, but if you were to explain it, you'd say, well, yeah, it's a part of my life. Have you ever known somebody, though, that took that hobby and it, it became like their life's passion? Uh, cycling is one thing, right? But training for an Ironman is different. I actually know a guy who's training for triathlons and uh, it is literally, um, well, I mean, I could use the word insane, but it is just insane how many hours and how much time and devotion it takes. Everything from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, every bite of food that you eat, all of the things you're doing with your body for that kind of training, right? There's a difference between I enjoy cooking and I enjoy baking versus I'm going to open a restaurant. Uh, know somebody that, you know, had opened a restaurant within the last year because they were a hobbyist and man, they love doing it, but it, it has now become this life-consuming thing. So think about your hobbies. Think about those things that you dabble in, that you kind of touch on in your life. One of the things that's really unfortunate about Christianity in the United States of America is that very often faith in Jesus gets put into that hobby bucket. I've got my work. I've got my family. I've got my neighborhood. I'm involved in the PTA. I do this, that, and the other thing. I've got, you know... The, you know, the sports team that I follow, the political affiliation I have. Oh, yeah, and then I go to church on the weekends too. And we dabble in Christianity as though it were a hobby. Yet what we're going to see over and over and over again, especially starting today, is that Jesus doesn't invite hobbyists. Jesus calls us to be disciples and to make disciples. Amen? That's the big idea of where we're going today. Jesus is calling disciples. Not hobbyists. Actually, in an earlier iteration of this, when I first started working on things this week, I was, I was using the word a fan. Jesus doesn't call us to be a fan or an admirer. But then I remembered that the word fan, as we use it today, you know, you're a fan of an artist or a fan of a sports team. It actually comes from, do you know what word it comes from? Fanatic, right? Uh, and actually, in that sense, yes, Jesus does call fans because he's asking us to have him be the most important thing that we're devoted to in life. Jesus does not call hobbyists, he calls disciples. This idea is actually so important to us as a church that when we were drafting our mission statement as a church, what is it that we're going to rally around? That's about 50% of it. I'll show you our mission statement. Our mission at Sound City is to glorify God. That means we want to get the attention off of ourselves and point it on to God by proclaiming Jesus. We're going to always talk about Jesus. Even when we were preaching through the book of Judges, we were somehow talking about Jesus, right? Because all the scriptures point to him. We always want to receive grace. It doesn't matter if you've been a disciple for five days or five decades. You are in need of receiving his grace. Not something you can do. Not an effort that you put out. You need to receive his grace. Amen? And how else are we going to glorify God? By being disciples and making disciples. Growing in the, the disciplines, learning who Jesus is, and helping others to grow, being involved in the lives of people. When you think about this word disciple, it might have some different connotations. Let me just really quickly summarize what the Bible has to say about discipleship. The word in Greek is mathetes, and if you're in there, math, it's actually where we get our word math, which means to learn. It's a learner. It's just as simple as that, someone who learns. The word mathetes, and it's you know, various forms, appears 262 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. And when something is repeated that many times, we should probably pay attention to it. Amen? But you know what was interesting to me that I learned this week? That word methetes only appears in the narrative books. It only appears in the Gospels and in Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, the stories. When the letters are written, Paul, John, Peter, others write these letters, they use other words. We're called children of God, 
beloved, saints, members of the household. We're called stones one time, which maybe is not the most complimentary term that the apostles could use for us. But this word disciple is only used in the narrative books, which means that discipleship is an action word and discipleship is about trajectory. Raise your hand if you here today are a 100% finished, completed disciple. Right? There is no book you can read. There is no class you can participate in and say, "Mm, bing, ding, the oven's done. You are now a disciple. That's not how it works. Discipleship is about trajectory. Discipleship is about having a compass heading that says, I am going to follow Jesus. Good days, bad days, thick, thin, rich or poor, no matter what, I'm following him and I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm becoming more like him and I'm, I'm going to invest myself all that I am Spirit, soul, body, heart, finances, affections, all of it belongs to Jesus. That's what discipleship has to do with. Now, we're going to meet five disciples. Let me, let me just introduce you to them real quick. Five disciples. Go, if you would, to verse 35. It says that uh, the next day, John, now pop quiz, which John is this? Yeah, which one? John, John B., thank you, yeah. John the baptizer, exactly. Everybody in the New Testament was named either John or Mary. You've got to pay close attention. So this is John the baptizer, not John the author of John. He was standing with two of his disciples. Now look at that phrase, two of his disciples, okay? So disciple one and disciple two. He was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So the two disciples heard him say this, and they left and they followed Jesus. Jumping down to verse 40... One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So that's our first disciple, a guy named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And it says that he first went and found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, so now we've got a third disciple involved, Simon. Disciple one is Andrew. Disciple two, we don't know who that is yet. Disciple three is Simon Peter. Then if you jump down to verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. So now we've got another guy named Philip. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip went and found Nathaniel. So we got five disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, but we still don't know who disciple number two is. Does anyone want to take an educated guess at who disciple number two might be? John, not the baptizer, John the author. You're right. Uh, Most scholars and commentators would say that this unnamed disciple is our author, the apostle John, who has a habit of not wanting to draw attention to himself. R.C.H. Lenski, a Lutheran scholar and commentator, says, Involuntarily we ask, who is the other of the two? And why is he not also named here? We know the answer. The other is John, the apostle himself, who never mentions his own name in the gospel, nor the name of any of his relatives. The only time John really references himself is when he says the disciple that Jesus really loved, which is subtle, right? So John here is, is kind of humble, takes a back seat, but he's one of the five. Actually, biblical scholarship and church history would tell us that, that John the Apostle was standing here with John the Baptizer, and when he began following Jesus, he was possibly as young as 15 or 16 years old. He's a teenager here. He's a very young man, a very young adult. He lives the longest of any of the apostles. He's the last remaining one. And so it's very likely that he is a young man here when he hears this invitation to follow Jesus. So here's what we're going to do with our time. I I, I looked through this story. I love this story. And I, I identified nine elements of discipleship. Nine things about being a disciple of Jesus that we can see from this story in the lives of these various men. And what I'd like to invite you to do is I'd like to invite you as best as you're able to insert yourself into the story, to imagine that you were there with Jesus, to imagine that you were there with John or Andrew or Peter, you were there with John the baptizer, to imagine that you're part of this story. Because what I believe is that this story, while it speaks to their discipleship, it speaks something to our discipleship as well. 
And let me even take it one step further. My hope and my prayer is that along the way, each and every single one of you are challenged, confronted, and even convicted at some point as we go. Not condemned, not beat over the head, because like I said earlier, no one here is a completed product. No one here is a 100% finished discipleship, right? Disciple. You want to learn how to be a disciple? Come take the class from me because I've got it nailed. None of us are like that. And I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit today wants to bring conviction into each and every one of our lives, not condemnation, but conviction that says there's hope and there's greater joy for us to have in following Jesus more closely. So can we do that, Sound City? Can you, can you put yourself into the story? Can you evaluate your own discipleship as we look at the lives of these first five disciples? You guys willing to do that? All right. If not, too bad. Here we go. Starting in verse 35. The next day, John, the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So we saw that last week. That's John the baptizer's whole job, is to get the attention off of himself and pointing over to Jesus. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now they're John's disciples, they're there with John, baptizing people, helping him. Maybe they were doing simple things like organizing the crowds into lines to get registered to get baptized. Maybe they were praying with people. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but they are called disciples of John. That means he's teaching them. That means he's training them. That means he's pouring into them. Do you think it might have been hard for John when uh, Andrew and the other John just up and leave him? Do you think it might have been a little bit challenging for him? Maybe. But I think that John, the baptizer, in his humility, knows something about being a disciple of Jesus, and that's your primary allegiance must be to Jesus. We're, we're allied with many things. Some of you are, you know, sports fans, and you've got your allegiance to your team. Some of you like politics, and you've got your party or your candidate, and some of you love being an American, and you're deeply allied to the United States of America, and, you know, think about, like, the Pledge of Allegiance, even that language that we use. It is a good and fine and normal and healthy thing to have allegiances to people and to groups and to organizations. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that, but you have to understand that the call of Jesus upon us is that our primary allegiance would be to Jesus. Here, these disciples, they're not being opportunistic. They're not being like, oh, we were with John, the baptizer, but then a better offer came along, and so we traded in the varsity team for the junior varsity team, right? That's not it at all. They just knew that the call of a disciple's life is to say, I am committed to Jesus more than I'm committed to anything else. So that's what these disciples did. I ask you, what are your allegiances? Do your allegiances ever get out of order? Do any allegiances that you have ever bump up against your allegiance to Jesus? Or is he primary? So verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to him, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, uh, the Apostle John does a good job of translating for us sometimes because he knows that he has a mixed Jew and Greek audience. So not everyone speaks uh, you know, Aramaic or Hebrew, doesn't know what the word rabbi means. And so he translates it into Greek for his audience. This word rabbi means teacher. It's a term of respect. And when they said, Rabbi, where, where are you staying? He didn't really answer his question, did they? And he said, well, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. It's later in the day. Here's, here's the deal. They start following Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, what, what do you want? What are you looking for? What is it that you're seeking? What's your desire? It's an insightful question from Jesus, is it not? See, they left John the baptizer. Is it possible? Let me just ask you, hypothetically, no one in this room, but people we've heard of, is it possible to follow Jesus for mixed motives? Is it possible to not want Jesus for himself? Is it possible to just want the stuff that Jesus has? Is it possible to only want to follow Jesus when times are good? When you got a big famous guy like John the baptizer saying, hey, go follow Jesus. Oh, this is going to be awesome. We're trading up. Is it possible that sometimes certain followers of Jesus might have mixed motives? So Jesus asks a very insightful question. What are you seeking? Now, the disciples... The answer, 
Rabbi, where, where are you staying? <laughs> There's two things about this. Number one, they answer with a term of respect. That's good. Hey, we, we're seeking a rabbi. We're seeking a teacher. We want to follow. And also, like, where are you, where, what are you doing? We're not entirely sure what your program is. We're not entirely sure what, what it is. But can we, can we just follow you and see? That's good. Jesus goes, yeah, come and see. Come and hang out. Wouldn't it be nice if when we became Christians, there was like a printout of everything that was going to happen in our lives from that moment forward? Wouldn't it be just beautiful? Like, hey, year one, grace bubble. You're going to be so happy that you're following Jesus. You're just going to hear birds chirping all the time. It's always going to be sunny. Year two, things are going to get rough. But don't worry, not too rough. Year 14, look out. Okay, it's going to... It's going to drop, uh, and your discipleship's going to be really challenged. But then don't worry, it's going to get better. Like, wouldn't that be wonderful if Jesus just programmed everything out for us? But no, Jesus says, you're going to come and follow me. I want to see your desires. You're going to have your motives evaluated, your desires evaluated. Have you ever had that moment where you realize, I think I'm following Jesus for the wrong reasons? Being a disciple of Jesus means that you're Going to have to understand, why, why are you following him? What if he doesn't tell me everything? What if I don't get to know the whole program? What if stuff gets hard? Come and see. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, like the first thing he does is he goes and he finds his brother Simon, his own brother, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew word. Christ is the New Testament Greek word. They both mean the anointed one. They both mean the king. We found the king. One of the first things that this disciple does is he goes out and he makes another disciple. We have bought into um, the, the mistaken idea that proselytizing is a bad word. You guys know that word proselytizing or uh, inviting people or, or going and trying to get people? I think there's two reasons in the United States of America why we don't like proselytizing. Number one, yes, some Christians have done a very poor job of sharing the gospel of Jesus. They have made it about themselves. They have made it about, uh, uh, you know, getting another notch on their Bible or another, you know, win under your belt. It's almost become like a competition or a game to just get one more signed up instead of actually loving and caring for the person themselves. But you also know that we have um, a culture that seems like by the week, there's some new marketing tactic or some new marketing gimmick to get you roped in. And I would dare say that a lot of people are cynical whether that's mass marketing through, you know, TV, the internet, or whether that's, you know, like network marketing. Had someone tell me recently, they, they got invited to go to lunch. The person reached out to and said, hey, I'd love to go get lunch with you. love to talk with you. Just get to know you. And then they had lunch. It was a great meeting, great lunch conversation. At the very end, they brought up, oh, hey, I want to talk to you about, and then you can just fill in the blank. And they said their heart just sank. Like, really? That's why you wanted to go have lunch with me is so you could sell me your product? And whether you've had that experience or not, you, you've, you've been marketed to. We've grown up in a media age. You're, you all have grown up in radio and TV and, you know, some of you for the internet. We're cynical about being sold a bill of goods. All that said, there is nothing weird or wrong about sharing something that you're excited about. And as Christians, we're called by Jesus to make disciples one unfortunate thing that happens at this juncture too when it talks about making more disciples, a fight starts to happen between two different groups of Christians. There's the evangelistically minded Christians. They say, well, we gotta go make new disciples. We gotta go find people who are not yet believers in Jesus. We gotta go invite them in. And there are others who are the like, I wanna teach and I wanna grow and I wanna help you mature. We've gotta make better disciples. We've gotta make maturing and growing disciples. Which one of those groups is Right? The answer is yes. Jesus in the Great Commission said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing, that sounds like new convert language, right? And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. That sounds like growing and maturing somebody, right? If you are a disciple of Jesus 
and you're not pouring into somebody else, you are growing stagnant as a disciple of Jesus. It's like a lake that has only a a tributary and no uh, output. It just grows stagnant. It is good and healthy and right and normal, dare I say, to take what good you've got and want to share it with others. Don't let cynicism about marketing and don't let cynicism about you know, even poorly behaved Christians cloud your judgment and cloud your idea of what the scriptures call us to. So Andrew goes and gets his own brother Simon, says to him, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah, he's going to be the king. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon the son of John. Nah, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I just love that. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who walked in uh, to college. I think I've sh- shared this before. He walked into college and his roommate goes, oh, what's your name? Said, yeah, my name's Craig. He goes, nah, you don't look like a Craig. Your name's going to be Hector. And now he, 25 years later, he still goes by Hector because of this roommate just said, nope. It's kind of like that with Jesus. But what Jesus is doing here is profound. He's naming somebody. Now, in our culture, that's kind of funny, ha-ha. Like, we can kind of look at that. You know, it's interesting naming somebody, but in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, your name was deeply connected to your identity. It's who you are. Simon, son of Jonah. That's just who you are. And Jesus says, no, I'm changing your name to Cephas. In Aramaic, it's Kepha. In, in, in Greek, it's Petros. You guys know what that word means? The rock. I'm gonna, it's like the, like, like the wrestler, right? The rock. Or Rocky, right? Either The Rock or Rocky. Both are tough guys. And it's funny because of two reasons. Number one, when you think of a rock, don't you think of something kind of stable? And as you read the story of the Gospels, I don't know that stable is the word that we would use to define Peter. He's kind of up and down and all over the place. But then Jesus makes this statement about him. He says, Peter, your, your, your name is Peter. You're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, Peter becomes the leader of the apostles. He becomes kind of the foundational leader that helps the Jesus movement explode out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus takes this up and down dude, Simon Peter, led by his feelings, hot one minute, cold the next, brave one minute, fearful the next, and Jesus transformed him to be the rock. Charles Spurgeon says, Christ changes men's names and he changes their natures too. He can take, can make the most fickle of us to become firm and steadfast. What a good word, is it not? So a disciple has their identity in Jesus. Who are you? What's your name? What, at the foundational level, the deepest level of who you are, are you named by Jesus? Now, number five. Continuing on to to verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Okay, let me just ask a quick question. Who is the active agent in this sentence here? Who's the one doing all the work? Jesus. That's right, the Sunday school answer applies. Yes, Jesus, you can say that. Nobody compels Jesus to go. He doesn't have to go to Galilee because of some festival or family gathering. He decides to go. And then who found who? Philip was wandering around looking for the Messiah. No, he's he's just hanging out in Galilee. We don't know what he was doing, but we know that Jesus found him. Actually, isn't it interesting in the story so far, the different ways that people have come to Jesus? You got Andrew and John the Apostle. They come to Jesus through the preaching of John the Baptizer. They listened to a sermon. They heard a guy who was eloquent and calling people. He was a fiery preacher. And he said, hey, look at Jesus. And they followed Jesus because of preaching. You've got Simon. Why does he start following Jesus? Because a family member came and got him. Some of you had that experience, a a family member, a, a relative, a parent, an aunt, an uncle. Somebody came and grabbed you. How did Philip meet Jesus? Jesus just straight up got him. Wasn't looking for Jesus wasn't searching, wasn't seeking, wasn't wrestling. Jesus just came and found him. Sometimes disciples come to Jesus even when they're not looking. (laughs) We come to Jesus in different ways and we need to practice grace with one another because your story is not the same as somebody else's story. 
I think of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and, 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 and Christian writers. He, he says this. He's talking about when he became a Christian, because he was an atheist. He was very anti-God, and he had set out more or less to prove that Christianity was, was untrue. He says, you, gotta, you, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, that steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> He goes on to say the, the words compella entrare, which is Latin for compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. C.S. Lewis is saying, like, I felt like I got forced into being a Christian. Thank God, because that was where I found freedom. We all come to Jesus in different ways. Let us practice grace with each other in that. But we as Christians need to remember, yeah, sometimes we hear preaching, sometimes a family member invites us, sometimes God just straight up comes and gets us. A disciple, continuing on verse 44, the disciple, so, so, Jesus went, he found Philip. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they're actually from the same original city, and they probably knew each other. Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, we found him. We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So this is amazing because what, what Philip is doing is he's tying in this call to follow Jesus to a story that is massively bigger than just them. He's saying, we found the Messiah. We found the Christ. You remember what Moses wrote about? You remember what the prophets wrote about? You remember how everything is broken and fallen and, and God has promised that there would be a deliverer, that there would be a rescuer and a redeemer? You have to remember, they're living under the rule of a Roman emperor, the Caesar Augustus during this time, who is not a good guy, and they're living under the rule of a puppet king, Herod, who is a particularly bad guy. And they're like, we don't need these kings. We need a real king. We need the Christ. We need the Messiah, the one that God God promised was going to come and sort out all of the mess. And they said, we found him. Let's get caught up in the story. Let's get caught up in the narrative. Let's get caught up in what's happening. One of the things about us as human beings is we love to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Do we not? I mean, that's one of the appeals of politics, right? To get caught up in a movement. I, 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 I'm just thinking back on every single presidential election that has happened, at least in my lifetime, and during the campaign, and particularly on the night of the election and the acceptance speech, the winning candidate almost always says something along the lines of, you know, this movement that we've created, and we've been caught up in this, and we've got the will of the people, even when sometimes the margin of victory was razor thin, right? We love that. We get caught up in that. You get caught up in the history of your sports franchise that you love. We're getting caught up in the, oh, you know, they won this and they w didn't win that. The, the baseball playoffs are going on right now. And you've got the Yankees and the Cubs and these, these franchises with over 100 years of history. And they're always telling the story. I'm like, just show the doggone game. I want to see that. Actually, think about this. <laughs> yeah, we get caught up in things. You ever been to a, a, a game or an event and the wave starts? Right? Like, the wave, right? I was thinking about trying to do it, but like, let's not do it. That'd be dumb. Um, because let's face it, the wave is dumb. And there's like, there's always some like enthusiastic guy or enthusiastic group of guys, and you guys are like, Aaron, it sounds like you. It's fair, yes. Who like starts it. And, there's, and it's, it's invariably, it happens the same way. There's always kind of just like the frumpy, like, oh, I'm not doing that. And then it goes around. So that's dumb, I'm not doing that. And then the third time it comes around, like everyone's like, okay, all right. And then they do it. And then they like sit down and they look at their spouse, like that was dumb, right? It was, but it was kind of fun. And you get caught up in the moment. 
We as humans, we love to get caught up in the moment. We love to get caught up. Everybody else is doing it. This is what's happening. Friends, there is nothing more exciting or more important that you could get caught up in than the fact that God sent his son to bring redemption to the world. And it's not a story that begins with Jesus. It starts all the way back at the beginning where God promised to Abraham to make his offspring into a great nation and and it becomes a nation of Israel and that through this one family, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And if you're a Gentile believer here, you've been adopted into this family of Abraham. You've been grafted into the tree and the gospel's exploded throughout the world. We're caught up in something that's way, way bigger than us. Amen? And that's a joy, and that's the greatest thing that we could be caught up with. Being a disciple of Jesus means you remember it's not just about you individually. It's not just about your community group, your discipleship group. It's not about your service. It's not about your local church. It's about being part of the capital C church made up of the saints from all ages, all nations, all tribes and tongues. What an amazing God we serve. Get caught up in that. We found him of whom Moses and the law was was talking about. The son of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. (laughs) No, I like Nathanael. It's like, He's, he's, he's wearing his opinions kind of out there on his sleeve. He's not, a, he's not one of those ones where you have to kind of guess what he's thinking. He goes, Nazareth, seriously? What good could come from Nazareth, right? You're like, oh man, I, I, you know, here's the political, the, the politician. We got to follow him. He's going to be great. Where's he from? New Jersey. You're like, no, right? Like, <laughs> if you're from New Jersey, God love you. I couldn't think, I, I, I tried to pick somewhere that people wouldn't be from. Because... Um, <laughs> Who wants to be from New Jersey? Okay, so Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, when you're in that moment, right? You ever, you ever kind of put yourself out there? Hey, come and check this thing out. And somebody goes, oh, I hate uh, whatever it is you're trying. You're like, oh, you ever had that moment? Does Philip go, oh, yeah, 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 right. I mean, it's, it's probably nothing. It's Nazareth, a little backwoods town, only probably a few hundred people. It's kind of a hick town. No, what does he say? He says, just come and see. Isn't it interesting now, too, that Philip is saying the same words that Jesus said? Come and see. Come and see. Philip perseveres through, pers- through opposition. When you're trying to share Jesus with someone, you will face opposition. And that's actually true when you're trying to invite someone who doesn't believe in Jesus to believe in Jesus, you'll face opposition. But actually, sometimes when you're trying to help grow a disciple and mature them, some, did you know that sometimes people don't want to change? You're going to face opposition. And the question is, will you persevere? Will you stick to it? We have Christian brothers and sisters right now that are literally meeting together as we speak. And if the officials of their government knew that they were meeting to worship Jesus, their very lives would be in danger. It's a saying, it's a cliche, but it's true. They say around the world, Christians in the developing world, they fear the raised fist. But in the United States of America, we fear the raised eyebrow. What are they going to think of me? Philip says, hey, you got to come and see. I know. I know it's ridiculous sounding. I know. I know. It sounds ridiculous that he was crucified and then actually came back to life three days later. I know that, that it sounds nutty that, that one day he's going to return and that we're going to be raised with him. I know, I know it sounds nutty that, that God inspired the Holy Scriptures to be written so that we could know him truly and we could know him as, as he wants us to know. I know it all sounds a little bit strange, a little bit, oh, would you just come and see? Disciples of Jesus persevere through opposition. Verse 47. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming. Nathanael came. Isn't that great? Philip persevered. You just got to come and see. So Nathanael comes. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, you kind of look at that like, is that like a backhanded compliment? Is Jesus making fun of him? I think what it has to, I mean, you just saw Nathanael just kind of blurt out his opinion. Nazareth's horrible. And Jesus says, hey, here comes a guy. We're going to know what he's thinking. <laughs> Jesus knows the character and the nature of Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Say, you don't know me. <sighs> Jesus answered him before Philip called you. So before Philip even got there, 
So this couldn't be Philip coming and reporting back. It's before Philip even got there. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Nathaniel was doing. Wide range of possibilities. Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was napping. Maybe he was sitting at the fig tree checking out the pretty girls and just having lust. Who knows? Who knows? Jesus knows. When you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I wish we knew more about what was happening there. That's between Jesus and Nathaniel. Whatever happened there, Nathaniel, in an instant, had his life turned inside out. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Jesus like, that was nothing. You will see greater things than these. Jesus says, buckle up. It's about to get all sorts of crazy. We're going to turn the page. We're going to see water into wine in just the very next chapter. We don't know exactly what the nature of this conversation was. We don't know exactly what happened, but I do know this. Nathaniel just had his life turned inside out, and he is never the same after meeting Jesus. I want to say something uh, loving but confrontational now for some of you. Some of you have been hobbying in Christianity for far too long. Some of you have been dabbling in the idea of Jesus, but you have never had your life turned radically inside out by Jesus. There is something that happens in a predominantly Christian sort of a nation. And I know there's argument about the, you know, is America a Christian nation? I'm not even talking about that. I'm not talking about the culture wars. I'm just talking that Christianity is the predominant religion where when you get the census form in the mail and it says to fill out, check your gender, your age, fill out what religion you are. You're like, well, I'm not Hindu. I'm not atheist. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Jewish. I guess I'll check Christian. And friends, let me tell you in love, that is not a Christian. We call that cultural Christianity. I'm a Christian because I'm nothing else. Jesus, when you've really met him, you will know because your life will be turned inside out. I know this might sound insane to some of you, especially those of you who are here today seeking, questioning, looking for Jesus. But as a pastor, I have had conversations with people where I have had to convince them that they are not a Christian before then I invite them to become a Christian. Because there is a superficial, false, cultural version of Christianity that exists out there, and it's almost like an antidote that keeps you from catching, as C.S. Lewis would call, the good disease. I want you, out of love for you, to have your life turned radically inside out by Jesus. Please don't follow Jesus or say that you're a Christian just because there's no other box on the census form that you would check. I know that's challenging. I know that's not even necessarily popular or or accepted well in our culture today. But I'm telling you this out of love because here's the last point. And it's this, that that the disciple knows that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus keeps going. He's still talking to Nathaniel. You're going to see greater things in these. Truly, truly, like really, really, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referencing something. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, he's referencing something very specific here. What is Jesus referencing? Be bold, somebody. Jacob's ladder, yes. You guys remember Jacob? Way back in Genesis, I think it's 28, there's Abraham. God makes a promise to him. Then there's Isaac, his son. And then there's his son, Jacob, the grandson. He's a bit of a scoundrel. He's on the run for his life. And he falls asleep one night. He puts his head on a rock for his pillow, it tells us. And he has a crazy dream. And he sees heaven opens up. And he sees this this staircase. And angels going up and down the staircase. And if you remember back earlier in Genesis, we just read that story of the Tower of Babel where people are trying to get to God. They're trying to build a tower to get to God and and God shuts that program down because we can't build a tower high enough to get to God. We're disconnected from God and our efforts ultimately prove futile. And so Jacob's having this dream, this crazy dream. And he sees this staircase and this ladder up to heaven and then like 
you know, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page show up and start writing a song about it. And I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean? Like this, this stairway to heaven idea. How are we going to be connected to God? Jesus says, you're going to see heaven open up and the angels are going to ascend and descend through me. I am the connection to God. I am the connection to heaven. I am how you're going to know that you can be made right with God because at the end of the day, all of man's efforts fall short. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God. And I know that's, that's even more of an unpopular opinion to state. But I'm going to tell you, we're going to see that and other ideas like it all throughout the Gospel of John. How are you going to know that you're made right with God? How are you going to know that you're connected to the source of life? It's only through Jesus Christ. So a disciple has their primary allegiance to Jesus, has their lives turned inside out by him because they know there's no other place where spiritual life is found. Ray Ortland, a pastor and author who I admire greatly, he says this. He says, we're not saying that Jesus is one good way among others, We're not even saying he's the best way among others. We're saying he's the only way. Let me ask you today, for some of you, maybe you're wrestling. Maybe maybe I'm not even a disciple. Maybe I've not been a disciple. And sincerely, with a heart of love and with a heart of grace, there's an invitation, an opportunity for you today to say, I don't want to be a hobbyist. I don't want to dabble in Jesus. I don't want to admire from afar. I don't want to be a fan in the casual sense of the word to say, I want to go all in. Jesus doesn't want anything fancy from you. He wants a sincere heart. God, I come to you. I have been disconnected from you. I need your grace. I need your love. And I believe that Jesus is the way. Others of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Maybe many years, many decades perhaps. But you know in your own heart that there's this drift, there's this tendency towards still finding out that in your life, Jesus is a little bit more of a hobby than you want him to be. Where are you needing to grow in your devotion to him? Where are you needing to grow in pouring into someone else? Where do you need to grow in calling a non-believer to come and see? Come and see. As I said earlier, there's a lot of different things in this passage, a lot of different truths. I don't want to be prescriptive for you. I want to invite the Holy Spirit right now to call you to respond as he wants you to. Would you go before Jesus in prayer with me? God, I I pray right now for my friends, my my brothers and sisters who are here today. God, uh, some here are not disciples in the sense that you call us to Jesus. And I ask and I pray that you would give them the faith. You would give them the gift of faith and the gift of grace right now to say there is only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus. And I need to come to God through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. God, others here today, we've been disciples, we've been followers for a while, but we've, we've drifted. We've, we've, we've become more of a hobbyist and not a sold out follower and passionate follower of Jesus. God, would you forgive us? And in your grace, bring conviction which is hopeful because we know that you're with us and you never leave us and you never abandon us. So God, I ask and I pray right now that you'd help us to respond to you as you want us to and that we would leave here today a more fully devoted follower of Jesus than we've ever been in our lives. We pray this in his name, amen. I wanna invite us to a time of response now. And the first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our, of our finances, our tithes and offerings. You know, I didn't bring it up in the, in the sermon but, because it's not there in the passage explicitly, but giving, money is a part of discipleship, right? That's, that's a part of who we are. And so as they uh, begin collecting the offering, I just invite you to give as worship, not out of guilt or obligation, but to give. Say, this is about me being a follower of Jesus. There's give envelopes out there at the Connect desk. Uh, We've got a number to text. You can go online to give. Whatever's easiest for you, we want to make it easy for you to give, again, as an expression of worship to Jesus. While they're collecting the offering, we're going to invite our uh, younger students class in to join us here in a moment. And uh, let me read a few discussion questions. Just three. Three very simple follow-up questions. Number one, being a disciple... Where might you be drifting into Jesus as a hobby and, and, and Jesus needs to be more of your whole life? And along that, who can help you in that? 
Number two, inviting a new disciple. So Philip said, come and see. Who's in your life that you need to say, come and see? They're there. They're there. And then number three, growing a disciple. Who has God placed in your life that you can disciple? And what intentional steps do you need to take to make this a reality? And then some things to pray about. Pray for yourself as a disciple that you will resist that drift of Jesus as a hobby and you'll follow him in every aspect of life. And then pray for the courage and conviction to invite new disciples and to follow through to help them grow. So let's pray together this week. Let's, let's uh, in our groups, in our families, our homes, with a friend, your spouse, whomever, let's challenge each other on this. I, I hope and I pray that somewhere you felt challenged. That was, that's what I pray that God would do for myself, for you, but know that there's love and there's hope. You know that difference between a, a loving, convicting challenge from the Lord and the condemnation of the enemy, right? Oh, you're failing at this. You're not doing good at that. That's the enemy. The Holy Spirit comes and says, hey, let's do this. I'm calling you to it. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I'll invite uh, our musicians to come here too, and they're going to get ready to, to lead us in a time of singing and a time of responding to Jesus through the table. This is for Christians If you are a Christian, if you've recently become a Christian, you're welcome to join us at the table, even if you're a guest or a visitor from another church. If you're not a believer, I would just put before you two options. Just abstain and and, and meditate on this practice that we're about to participate in, or even better, trust in Jesus and join us at the table. This is about discipleship. Listen, Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as disciples, this is one of the ways that we get to say, my primary allegiance is to Jesus. He's turned my life inside out. We're going to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Jesus is within me. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, take a moment, pray, search your heart. Allow God to search your heart. Where is there anything unclean in me? Where have I drifted? Where have I gone into hobbyist mode instead of disciple. And when you're ready, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. The musicians will play quietly underneath and then we'll stand together and we'll sing in a moment. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that during this time of reflection and during this time of eating the bread and drinking the cup and during this time of singing, I pray all of this, God, would not just be for us right now in this moment, but it would just be a a catalyst and a spark to lead us forward into deeper discipleship, deeper following of you, more devoted following of you, deeper discipling of others. Whatever that may look like in our lives, God, we want to submit to you and to your will now. Help us, we pray, to respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.